and welcome to Mixed DNA, the podcast with two mixed rights girls talking about anything and everything. I'm Vanessa. And I'm Melissa. And in today's episode, we'll be talking about the Bechtel test. Let's be honest. Did you know what this test was before I suggested it as a topic for today's episode? I think I remember my husband telling me about this, but I don't remember uh, everything about it. But it was something along the lines of movies uh, with female leads, um, which I know are very few. Women can experience many, many things that don't involve men or being in romantic movies. I can't remember the exact instant I learned about the Bechtel test, but I remember watching something and the characters were talking about it. I'm going to say this was like when I was in my mid to late 20s. And since that time, I've been quite fascinated about it. When I'm watching something, maybe a new series or a movie, the test pops into my head and I try to determine if what I'm watching passes the test. So for those who don't know, the Bechdel test, and this is quoted directly from the Merriam-Webster Dictionary, a way of evaluating whether or not a film or other work of fiction portrays women in a way that is sexist or characterized by gender stereotyping. To pass the test, a work must feature at least two women, and these women must talk to one another, and the conversation must have, or sorry, must concern something other than a man. And just in time for International Women's Day, this seems a fitting discussion. This test is named after American cartoonist Alison Bechtel. What was that? Oh, I was moving the earphone. Sorry. Oh. <laughs> this test, this test is named after American cartoonist Alison Bechtel, as the test first appeared in her 1985 comic strip *Dykes to Watch Out For*. Bechtel credits her friend Liz Wallace and the writings of Virginia Woolf, helping her to come up with what the test is known as today. The test became more wildly discussed in the 2000s, and a number of variants have emerged since then, a few of which we'll look at in today's episode. In a 1929 essay from Virginia Woolf titled A Room of One's Own, Woolf observed about literature in her own time what can currently be highlighted in our present-day works of fiction like TV shows and movies and, of course, literature. Woolf wrote all these relationships between women, I thought, rapidly recalling the splendid gallery of fictitious women, are too simple. And I tried to remember any case in the course of my reading where two women are represented as friends. They are now and then mothers and daughters, but almost without exception, they are showing in relation to men. It was strange to think that all the great women of fiction were until Jane Austen's day, not only seen by the other set, but seen only in relation to the other sex. And how small a part of a woman's life is that? I think that's very sad actually. So to reiterate, to pass the test, the movie or series, or more accurately, a portion of these works must feature two female characters who are speaking to one another, and their conversation must be about something other than a man. And over the years, variants of the testing protocol have been proposed. For example, the two women have to be named characters, not like a main character and a lady standing in front of her at the coffee shop. And there has to be at least 60 seconds of conversation. Although these last two aren't imperative for a work to pass the test, I like these two rules, as I feel they bring more context to the correctness of the conversation as a whole. I also think it's more interesting to apply the test principles to a TV series than a movie. That's my own personal opinion, of course, because for me, a movie generally has one main storyline and a TV series can span seasons and various stories over many years, making it harder or even more interesting to dissect as a pass or a fail. Yeah, that's true. Uh, so this test has been described as a commentary on how media representations can enforce harm harmful gender norms uh, by creating characters wanting relationships to men more than, other, uh, more than other relationships and women's lives as important as, as they only relate to men. American reporter Neda Olabi said, and I'll quote her directly, uh, the test resonates because it articulates something often missing in popular culture. Not the number of women we see on the screen, but the depth of their stories and range of their concerns. When watching something or reading, we can use the Bechtel test as a way to judge if what we're engaging in is women-friendly. There's no such thing as a we must follow this test criteria in Hollywood for productions to get made. But in the past 10 years or so, studios and screenwriters have taken note 
and companies have incorporated the Bechtel test or something similar when writing, reviewing, and editing, helping to ensure that there is a better balance of gender representation. Right. Uh, a work can still pass the test and contain sexist content. The test is widely accepted in many media circles. Uh, there's a lot of criticism though, because its criteria and how it's tested can be very vague. The test wasn't meant to be a measure of feminism, which is how some perceive it, but it was always a kind of a cultural barometer. So for today's episode, we'll use it as a cultural barometer, as well as when we discuss films and series, though that both pass and fail the Bechdel test. Because something, uh, because something is supposedly feminist in nature doesn't mean it necessarily passes the test, nor does it really matter. But when testing through the feminist lens, uh, the content needs to be more scrutinized. Being able to pass the test does not make the film or, or series feminist. Uh, all encompassing, the film is fem feminist. But that could be another episode altogether. Before we jump into whether what we're watching passes or fails the test, we're going to talk gender stereotypes in Hollywood. And while we understand and are appalled at the gender inequality behind the camera, writers, directors, etc., salary, inequality, press time, etc., today we'll primarily be focusing on the fiction, what we see on our screens, the things we tune into to for entertainment purposes. Um, so back to those Hollywood stereotypes. There are a lot of them. And while the world is finally waking up and understanding that the stereotypes are offensive and not overly entertaining, and we are seeing more and more empowered female characters on the screen that defy the stereotypes, we are unfortunately still seeing too many and definitely need a bunch of them to be left behind. I agree. Okay, so let's start with the stereotype of the trophy wife or trophy girlfriend. Uh, these women exist solely to please their partner. They are sexually objectified and have very little input in their affairs. She is usually a status symbol with little personal merit aside from her physical attractiveness, which requires substantial finances to maintain her parents and lifestyle. Uh, she is usually also unintelligent or unsophisticated. Uh, the term gold digger can be used here as well. Someone young and attractive, usually second or third wife or a new girlfriend, or as examples, um, I read examples from the next line. Damn it. Um, okay. Or as a replacement and huge contrast to the male's, uh, the male character's first wife or original partner. Examples include 1953's Gentlemen Prefer Blondes, the character played by Marilyn Monroe, Lorelei Lee, um, 1995's Casino, the character Ginger McKenna, played by Sharon Stone, 2006 Talladega Nights, The Ballad of Ricky Bobby, uh, the character is Carl Carly Bobby, played by Leslie Bibb, and in 2018 Superfly, uh, the character Georgia. I'm not sure if she has a last name, but she's played by Lex Scott Davis. The second stereotype we need to see less of is the Ice Queen. And no, we don't mean Queen Elsa from Disney's Frozen. We mean a woman with a cold heart and a frosty demeanor. She's usually career focused, like super career driven. Because of course, if you focus so much on your own career, you can't have much else going on, especially in matters of kindness or just general niceness. Uh, mean Girls, a term we all know well, and one that pop culture keeps alive, can be seen as a type of Ice Queen too. So examples of Ice Queens include 2006's The Devil Wears Prada, the character Miranda Priestley, played by Meryl Streep, 2015's Jurassic World's character Claire Deering, played by Bryce Dallas Howard, which I think Vanessa's going to talk about a bit later, um, Julia Louis-Dreyfus as Selena Meyer on HBO's Veep, which ran for seven seasons, and Naya Rivera's character Santana Lopez on Fox's Glee, which ran for six seasons. Okay, now let's look, now let's take a look into BIPOC female stereotypes. So the first one here is the spicy Latina. She is gorgeous, very exotic. Uh, she's hot tempered. She starts rambling in Spanish when she's angry. Uh, she's generally full of emotional baggage and often, but not always, portrayed as a sultry temptress. So examples of this kind of character is uh, Eva Longoria as Gabrielle Solis on Desperate Housewives, Sofia Vergara on Modern Family, Salma Hayek as Isabel Fuentes in 1997 Fool's Russian, and Michelle Rodriguez as Letty Ortiz in the Fast and Furious franchise. Another BIPOC female stereotype we can briefly take a look at is the sassy Black woman. 
She's usually a white person's best friend or your office coworker. She's hilarious and never misses the chance to drop a punchline or an insult. This character usually doesn't have her own storyline, so she doesn't have problems of her own. She's always dependable and ready to offer up advice. She's 50-50 on traits. It doesn't matter if she's rich or poor or smart or dumb. Uh, she fits the role because she's Black and because she is sassy. Examples include Stacy Dash as Dion Davenport in 1995's Clueless, Retta as Donna Meagle on Parks and Recreation, and Wanda Sykes in pretty much every role she's ever been in. Oh, and uh, Yvette Nicole Brown as uh, Shirley Bennett on Community. There are so many female stereotypes that we need to see less of in Hollywood, 100%. The cool girl, the bridezilla, the dirty old woman, the awkward virgin, the crazy cat lady, and the ever-popular damsel in distress. And of course, the list goes on and on. Uh, but, but without these stereotypes, would the fictitious stories we watch on the big and small screens be interesting? Or have we been brainwashed into believing that we need those stereotypes for our fiction to be entertaining? If we eradicated the stereotypical characters from Hollywood, wouldn't all the characters just be the same? They just need a good story and especially a good script writer. I think a lot of movies have tried to do this, but someone else's vision of what it should be overpowers it. I'm sure the studio has a lot to do with what they want to see in a movie because they're the ones wanting to make the money. I also don't think the characters would be the same more than how most of the main characters are the same. Male, male characters have all the same stereotypes, I think, but it seems to make more money and have more people come out to theaters. That rarely ever happens. That that rarely ever happens unless the woman is a sexy character that does something not that interesting. So one movie that immediately comes to mind is Wonder Woman. She, I think she could have been so much more. I mean, her okay. So her uniform, for starters, is very impractical, but it looks nice. If you're supposed to be fighting all day, I feel like she's not invincible. She's going to get a lot of s scratches and cuts. It's not, <laughs> it's, not, it's not very good armor. It's terrible. But that's just my opinion. Uh, she's, very, she's very beautiful, but she's not a very good actress. Once again, my opinion. Um, I think they totally could have made a modernized version of, version of Wonder Woman, who was just as powerful and beautiful. I mean, if that's what they wanted her to be. Uh, the armor that was worn by the Amazon women when they were fighting in the beginning of the movie, that armor would have been perfect. Maybe less bulky. Anyway, she's just so incredibly bland. I didn't have high hopes for the movie anyway, but the trailer, watching it was worse. Okay, I'm going to be honest. I've never watched Wonder Woman. I mean, I watched original Wonder Woman like way back when I was a little girl. Um, but like, I didn't, I didn't have all the wisdom and knowledge that I have right now. But um <laughs> Gal Gadot as Wonder Woman and to be honest I obviously haven't seen Gal Gadot act in anything besides Wonder Woman um, so I, I can't comment if she's a good actress or not yes she's pretty um, but yeah I totally get what you're saying about the armor very impractical who's running around like in a skirt like the Avengers <laughs> the Avengers women fight in normal clothes like all those Marvel people <laughs> like step up DC step up for real in many things so let's get to the main event of today's discussion, the Bechdel test. What fails and what passes? In my personal opinion, for anything to be able to pass or even have the potential to be a contender to pass the test, the cast has to have a significant amount of female characters, or at least two to be able to carry on a conversation about anything really. For example, Sex in the City, and I'm talking the original plus the movies because I haven't watched um, the, the newest and just like that. And I don't me think neither. I will. Because for me, no Samantha, no Kim Cattrall. That sounds like a bad idea to begin with. I agree. So um, this is obviously, it's a woman show. No lies there. Um, the main leads are female and the content is very female forward. The narrator is female. So the narrative is by a woman for women. Um, very feminist indeed, right? So right off the bat, it's obvious that the series passes rule number one more than one female character and rule number two the women speak to one another and boy oh boy do they do a lot of that in this franchise but rule number three in my opinion this show fails sex in the city is about these women's romantic and sexual lives each character is super successful in her own right carrie's a writer miranda's a lawyer samantha's a pr exec and charlotte's an art dealer like those are four fabulous fictitious jobs right like for four people to know each other and be that fabulous. Very, very yes. rare. Yeah. Um, 
but this is never the core of their characters and oh but those fabulous jobs are never at the core of their characters it's all romantic relationships all the time how to keep a man how to lose a man how to pleasure a man how to get him to pleasure you sometimes they talk about clothes and shopping and some other random topics here and there like the holidays or a party or vacation but let's be honest the majority of conversations between the core four women are men-centric and that's not necessarily a bad thing like this is great tv that's why the series is so successful and continues to to be so um you can view the series as the complex ups and downs of women's being in of you can view the series as the complex ups and downs of women being in love about making bad decisions and learning from your mistakes about finding your place in the world albeit usually in a couple a man woman couple but still in my opinion from a feminist perspective it's great that these four successful women are thriving in New York they're strong and they're savvy and they love themselves but this show still fails like to me anyway it's looking slowly at the main if I'm solely looking at the main criteria for passing the test yes would it be as good as yeah it would probably be better actually more dramatic but I guess it was just supposed to be fun okay um so a fail for me um is Bryce Dallas as Melissa mentioned in the beginning in Jurassic World so right off the bat she was the cold business woman who's all about business business all the time uh so even though she's very business oriented uh she could have been a strong female female lead because she had a very important job at the park um yeah so she could have been I I, I would say equal with Chris Pratt um, so in the beginning you see, yeah, okay, she's cold, whatever. And she was, she was okay. Uh, but when she had to go ask Chris Pratt for help, um, wait, she was all right until she, okay. So she was all right, uh, the beginning of the movie until she needed to go ask Chris Pratt for help. Um, so on the way there, they made her freak out about going to see him, which at first you don't know why, uh, but you find out shortly after that it was because they slept together and he didn't call her or some shit like that. Um, they really didn't need to make them have any kind of relationship at all, except professionally. It didn't add anything to the characters. Uh, it wasn't really a look into their personal lives. You know, it didn't add anything at all. It was just like, they slept together. Okay, cool. They're connected somehow. Um, what's it called? Yeah, so then after she asks him for help she can you know ignore all of her deep feelings for him and get over it just to you know for him to help her um this movie does not pass the test like i said so she's um the main woman in the movie but she's not um having any conversation with any other women for i don't know may maybe more than two minutes her sister and her assistant uh, her assistant sorry are the other females but they don't have uh, large speaking roles. Um, and number three, her involvement in the movie, I think is uh, mostly because of Chris Pratt. You know, while he's helping, she stepped in and said, oh, you know, okay, I can help too. When she could have helped already. She didn't need him to start helping for her to believe that she could help. Um, and when she decided that in the movie, she untucked her blouse and tied it in kind of like a halter knot and fixed her pants and then he you know looked at her and she, he's like what's that and she's like I'm ready what what is that why do you have to do that why can't you just be ready oh I, like I'm so concerned with how I look right now while we're gonna be eaten by dinosaurs so stupid anyways um and another ridiculous thing in the movie this is the part of the movie that bothers me the most is the part where she's trying to lure the t-rex out and help with the other crazy dinosaur that they created so she's running in heels and her whole outfit is white. They're in a jungle. She is running for her life in heels. And to me, that makes no sense. First of all, if you are actually trying to lure a man-eating dinosaur, wouldn't you kick off your heels and run for your damn life? Maybe that's just me. But I think it would be really hard for you to run in the forest uh, in heels for your life, like literally for your life. Can't really duck out of the T-Rex's way, you know? So I think for most women to make a solid sprint as fast as they can in heels is pretty hard. What do you think? 
I totally agree. I can't even <laughs> barely walk from here to the front door in heels. So, <laughs> but she's busting and moving the forest. Um, well, I mean, I guess they were going for her to be tough and brave, but still feminine, you know, because I don't know. That's the kind of character she was. Very feminine, but tough, you know. I'm pretty and sure you can still be feminine in combat boots. I agree. And sexy. Um, and then another part that bothered me, even though. Okay, I don't know what I was going to say, even though. But anyways, another part that bo- uh, bothered me about her character is that she didn't like children. For whatever reason, they made her uncomfortable. And then she had to watch over her her kids. And I'm not saying that she should like kids or should have to like kids because she's a woman. It's just the way that she interacted with the kids. You know, they were going to come and she's like, eh, eh. And I want to see them. And then, you know, her sister was like, oh, watch over them. Uh, I'm not going to do that. And then asked her assistant to watch them because she's too businessing. And then after uh, that, her nephews were lost and she was freaking out. And then when she saw them, she's like, oh, my God, I'm so happy you're here. And inviting them over and stuff. It's foolishness. Anyways, they could have done a lot better with her character, I think. Do you think she was more relieved to find her nephews because she wouldn't have to go through that whole confrontation with her sister or she really cared about the nephews i don't know but the first one would have made more sense instead of her acting like she was crying and falling apart it's not that you can't love even though you're like cool businessy person but they just made her like disgusted with her own family and then you know hugging up chris pratt and the boys all being like chris pratt's amazing so then i guess she loves them too now i don't know garbage (laughs) okay so next i want to talk about hbo's insecure which unfortunately i haven't even started the final season because life just gets in the way of me watching tv but um the show embraces female insecurity hence the title uh the women are a mess they're rarely ever comfortable in their own skin they don't know what the hell they're doing at work at home mentally physically just like real women they're all over the place all the time and no matter how together they may seem So, for those that don't know, Insecure is a dramedy where the main leads, Issa and Molly, embody all these insecurities perfectly. I love these characters, and I love this show. And I always have, since the beginning, I found it very refreshing. Do you watch Insecure? I do not. I always see it, and I I like the girl, uh, Issa, Issa Rae. I I really like her, but I just, I never got around to it. Okay. It's worth watching, though. Yes, very much so. Mm -hmm. I need to really get on watching the last season which we'll get around to soon so for testing purposes for rule number one there are female characters and for those that haven't watched there are more than the female characters than just the two i've mentioned um rule number two the characters have many many conversations and number three they do talk a lot about more than just men um while the main characters do of course discuss their romantic relationships they cover a slew of other topics as well money careers and their own complicated friendship in my opinion the show passes the test because at its core the show is about the relationship between the two friends about the relationship between Issa and molly their joys and their sadness we see them vulnerable and we see their honesty we don't only see those traits in their romantic relationships but we see it in their relationship with one another plus A big pass of this test for the show for me is Issa talking or singing or rapping to herself in the mirror, which she ought to do pretty much every episode. And that's one of my most favorite parts of the show because she's just, she's hilarious. What is she rapping to herself? Just like if she's like having a complex about whatever. Um, It could be about her job, like she's trying to psych herself up for something. It could be about a man like trying to talk her out of talking to a guy into talking to a guy um about any it's her pep talks to herself basically oh okay that sounds interesting okay so my next one is a past and i couldn't wait for this i was so excited to write about it so one of my favorite one of my very favorite movies that i think definitely passes this test uh well as badass woman movie anyway um is alien with sigourney weaver So this movie is just awesome. Um, I don't know if any of you out there like sci-fi or horror, but this is such a great uh, film with a strong female lead. 
<clears throat> so uh, Sigourney Weaver is uh, on a ship with crew through space to get to a planet to pick up something and bring it back to Earth. The film, when the crew goes on the planet to pick up the cargo, uh, not knowing it was a murderous alien, uh, she stays on the ship and is appointed to senior office uh, to senior officer. So one of the crew members gets attacked and he looks very sickly and it's her decision whether or not to let them back on the ship because he's, con he's contaminated. So they fight and they fight and then there's another character on there. He's bad in the end. But anyways, he opens the ship because he wants the, the alien on the ship. So she, when she keeps saying no, she shows her leadership and tactical actions like she's really a really good officer in this moment. Um, so throughout the movie, the crew gets murdered, obviously, horror. Um, and eventually she is the last sur to survive on the ship. So she doesn't necessarily outsmart the alien as Trickett. Maybe that is outsmarting. Uh, she has to do everything alone and fight off this massive murdering alien. And it's so badass. So number one, this movie did have two women in it, uh, but she eventually dies. But uh, when they did talk, it was never about... Um, it was never about men at all, unless it was somebody they worked with. Um, yeah, and the um, when they did talk, uh, one situation in particular, um, the one woman was freaking out and Ripley had to calm her down because the woman was becoming hysterical, uh, but not a quote unquote womanly way that uh, would be defined as hysterical women. Um, but in this situation, she was terrified. I mean, wouldn't anybody be terrified that there's a murderous alien on the ship? I mean, come on. Uh, so towards the end of the movie, she gets away on a pod uh, to leave the main ship as it's about to um, detonate. Um, so she's getting ready for bed, uh, but notices that the alien is on her ship. So she has to be strong again and kill this damn thing. So one thing I guess they found a way to sexualize Sigourney Weaver uh, as the character was that she was wearing a really small tank top and small panties. But I mean, the situation was not sexual at all. You know, I mean, she was getting ready to go to bed and that's how some women dress like that. And then, you know, now she has to get out and try to live. So nobody would be thinking like, oh, I need to get my pants, but whatever. Um, yeah, so I think she's the epitome of the perfect female character or there should be more of her. Have you seen Aliens? No. Yes? I I have not seen Alien. Oh, okay. It's, she's cool. It's like, of course, on my list of like 101 movies that I want to watch before I die, but probably never will. Oh my God, you should. It's awesome. Um, one day, one day. <laughs> um, so when you think of a show with a predominantly female cast, the first thing that crosses people's mind is that it will be like a girlfriend-esque kind of show. Women sitting around, drinking wine, discussing home decor, fashion tips, maybe recipes and mom type things. But that doesn't have to be the case. And it's definitely not the case for Good Girls. Good Girls is an NBC series that is also available on Netflix. And uh, I just found out recently it was apparently canceled for financial reasons. But there are four seasons available, and I think that something worth indulging in if you're looking for something to watch. Uh, the series is about three moms, Beth, Annie, and Ruby, who, upon falling on financially hard times, take matters into their own hands and rob a grocery store. Nice. So chaos ensues after that with, like, there's more crime, there's gangs, there's guns, there's fraud. And, of course, they're still moms, so they do regular things like grocery shopping, house cleaning, making lunches. Um it's an excellent watch and it's a very well-rounded show. It has laughs, it's dramatic, there's romance, there's adventure. And like, what more could you want from a TV series? So for Bechdel testing purposes, so for rule number one, there are female characters. Rule number two, these female characters have conversations with one another. And number three, they definitely talk about other things other than the men in their lives. Um, for the most part, Beth, Annie, and Ruby are discussing how to get themselves out of sticky situations, like how to stay alive uh, while still being moms and doing mom things like um, taking care of their kids, soccer, drop-offs, that sort of things. Um, for me, this show passes, and it's a feminist show uh, with a twist, and I like that it's, it's different than your normal girly show. Hmm. I have not seen that one either. Um, so this is a fail, <clears throat> um, my next movie, uh, but I really like this movie, um, I guess because it's silly, but anyways, it's Charlie's Angels. 
uh, the one with Cameron Diaz, Drew Barrymore, and Lucy Liu. Uh, I refuse to watch the new one. Um, so the movie is fun and the characters are cute and, you know, badass at the same time, I guess. Uh, the movie didn't really have to have male characters to interact with, I think, uh, other than the men they work with and the villain. Um, in this adaptation of Charlie's Angels, there is a woman villain, um, but she wasn't too much in the movie and ha- didn't have to, but she did use her sexuality to get what she wanted. So, I mean, to me, that's a failure. Um, the movie does have multiple characters, which, and they always do speak with each other. All the women speak to each other and it doesn't really have much to do with men. Um, but they do talk about men and their relationships. Um, they so then wouldn't it, this be a pass? Yeah. I was going to say like, why is this failing? Everything seems like it's really good. Really good. <laughs> <laughs> okay. I think for this one, what you're trying to get at is that it passes, but it's still disappointing to women. Yeah, it is. Don't you think? Sorry. Okay. So when they do talk about men, it's not that their relationship rules, the relationship part of their lives rule them. It's just everything they do in the movie is sexual. Like everything they do to get their way, they have to be sexy. So in one part of the movie, they're trying to get information and they're just like sexy Swedish milkmaids with like heaving breasts and like little shorts and being cute. And, you know, they, they don't know English. And then, you know, they got the information, ha, 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 with their like technological advanced uh, tuba or whatever. And then another <laughs> part, <laughs> Lucy Liu has to uh, distract something, nerds, I guess. And then goes into this room and is all leathery, temptress, you know, dominatrix kind of thing. It was ridiculous. It's not that it's not fun, but it's just ridiculous. They're like, look at, you know, Mission Impossible. Like, is Tom Cruise doing a lap dance and then getting information? Or like, I don't know, shaking his moneymaker? He like emerges from the ceiling on a cord and it's awesome. Um, I really think they should have just stuck with the female villain because she was cool with the time that they gave her um even though sam rockwell is a really great actor um yeah they could have just done without him or switched the characters um but uh on another hand i don't really think this is a kind of story that could be represented as male i mean three men are rarely together in a fighting action movie as in like all in the same lead um like these women were So I guess three women equal to one man in an action movie. So in a lot of action movies, a man as a, uh, as the lead, there might be a lot of people who fight along with him. But like I said, there's not like three main characters. It just, it seems like there's always an adaptation of men's movies to turn into female movies, but female movies just can't be on their own and cool. Um, I could not bring myself to watch the female Ghostbusters or the Ocean's Eleven just because why? Why? Unnecessary. I really liked female Ghostbusters. Did um, you? I thought it funny. I liked like the concept of how they tied it to original Ghostbusters. Um, I, I didn't watch. I the did not one? watch Ocean's Eleven, no, the women's version. I want to. It's on my one hundred and one movies to watch before I die, but probably not in one hundred and one slots. It's probably like one hundred and fifty one, but. I, I would like to watch it. No, the next movie that I'm going to talk about, you should watch that one if you haven't already. Could salsa. We should do an episode on my 101 movies I haven't watched because, listeners, in case you haven't noticed over the course of our episodes thus far, I am not a movie watcher. Vanessa's a movie watcher, and I'm a TV yeah, watcher. That's all I do. Vanessa doesn't watch TV as much as I watch. No. <laughs> no. Vice versa. This is why we balance each other so well. But yeah, there's a lot of movies I really need to watch. Just like I think there's a lot of TV shows you really need to watch. True story. But yeah, the next one, you'll like it. Well, it's good. I, mean, like, I think it is. Just like this next TV show I'm going to talk about that you probably never watched, but I think you should. So okay, I absolutely love this next show. And I can definitely admit that the series unfortunately fails the Bechdel test. Number one, it has multiple female characters. Number two, these female characters speak to each other 
very regularly. However, number three, they are rarely ever in conversation that doesn't have to do with men, or in the case of the show, boys. The series I'm speaking about is Netflix's Never Have I Ever. And like I said, I love the show. But when I was trying to find a show to discuss which fails, which, by the way, is easier said than done, I definitely realized that this one fails. Have you ever watched the show? I have not. Oh, Vanessa. Okay. Okay. <laughs> I have not. <laughs> so I didn't do charts and graphs and go episode by episode to make sure that this is a fail. But when I think of the series in a broad sense, and from what I can recollect about the series over the course of its two existing seasons, I'm confident that it fails. So pretty much the entire cast is female. There's 15-year-old Davy and her mother and her cousin. They all live together. That's a female cousin. Plus, there are her two best friends, Eleanor and Fabiola. While I do find that each of the characters mentioned are very well-developed and able to hold their own storylines, I consider the series failing because Davy, as the primary character, takes center stage in the majority of the conversations. And in season one specifically, she's hell-bent on getting a boyfriend and having sex. So, of course, that's the main subject of the majority of the conversations. Other topics of interest in season one include the death of her father and other funny things occur, like in the course of anyone's freshman year in high school. And in season two, we see Davy trying to keep that boyfriend or boyfriends while trying to maintain a civil relationship with her mother and her friends. So the downfall of the relationship with her mother and her friends has to do with boys. So once again, it's mostly conversations about Paxton and Ben, who are the two male leads on the series, um, who are actually the only two male leads on the series um, in different contexts. So basically, Davy's story is also voiced by a male character. Um, I mean, not voiced by a male character. It's narrated by a male. Um, the male is uh, once upon a time tennis pro John McEnroe as himself, which is even odder. So while that doesn't immediately cause the show to fail the test, it definitely doesn't help that the story is told. Her perspective is being told from a male, a grown-up man perspective. (laughs) It's about a teenage girl that a grown man narrates? Yes, John McEnroe. Oh my goodness. You want me to watch this nonsense? It's really good. Hmm. And it's a Southeast Asian cast. Hmm. Which is rare. That is very true. And it's funny. It's a funny show. Hmm. Netflix? Yes. Okay. Oh, you said Netflix at the beginning? Yes. <laughs> yes, Vanessa, I said Netflix is never have I ever. Okay, Vanessa, focus. Okay. So, clearly I only, I thought of passes, but um a really good action movie that i would say is a pass i really like it is set it off with jada pinkett i guess jada pinkett smith but not at that time uh queen latifah vivica fox and kimberly eli she was not um i guess she was the last so it's all a bunch of girlfriends um but obviously jada pinkett queen latifah vivica take over because they're awesome um, so this movie is very exciting and uh, very sad. Uh, like I said, it's about four women who are friends but have money problems, uh, each having their own issues. Um, I think Queen, it was Queen Latifah's idea to rob the bank because in the beginning scene, um, Vivica Fox is a bank teller and the bank gets robbed, but she knows the guy who, who was robbing the bank and tried to you know, convince him not to do it. Anyways, after that, he robs a bank, and then her boss fired her just because she lives in the same area as him. Anyways, uh, so uh, Jada Pinkett, uh, she has a brother that she has to support, and he said that he got into college, so she was very excited, but she needed money, didn't have any. Um, and before they started uh, robbing the banks, she wanted to get more money for her brother, so she prostituted herself uh, for someone that they knew in the neighborhood just so she could get him the money but she later finds out as he tells her that he didn't get into college and he doesn't want to go to college and then he eventually gets killed by the police uh thinking he was from a local gang so what a waste um so vivica vivica doesn't have a job anymore queen latifah is just struggling and the last girl has a son she needs to take care of um and can't afford uh a babysitter 
So she, so all the ladies work at a cleaning, a cleaning company. So they go to office buildings and, and clean. So she couldn't afford the childcare and then brought the child. So the child got into chemicals, got sick. Then they all had their reasons to go to rob, rob the bank. So um, there's no, so number one, there's definitely more than one female character. Number two, they have conversations with each other through all, all the time. And the conversations don't really have anything to do with men as relationship other than being somebody, being like a, a character that they knew, a man. Um, and the only romance that was very small in it is when they were scoping at a bank. The uh, the bank manager looked at her, had a crush on her. It's Blair Underwood. I would have a crush. Me too. You know? He's so cute. See, we're failing the Bechdel test. It's true. Um, I know. <laughs> yeah, that's it. It's just a really great movie with strong women with bad choices, but they're still strong. See, and because you like this movie, is which is why I think you would like that good girl show that I mentioned. It kind of very similar to mm. this. I have also known much of That was a bank. This is that was a grocery store. Um, <laughs> okay, it's the same. They had money problems. They had money problems. It's it's all the same shit. Hmm. Okay, so there are many variants of the test that have popped up since the original inception of the Bechtel test, and they cover everything from BIPOC representation to gender equality, and each is just as important as the other because representation does matter, and representation isn't a new concept. It's just easier to see nowadays. We'll mention a few of these testing variants in a moment, but just like we briefly mentioned with the Bechtel test, each test is to be taken with a grain of salt because not every project put forth by Hollywood should encompass all walks of life. Depending on the grand subject of what I'm watching, I can't always expect men and women to be represented equally. Maybe it's about an all-boys school or a monastery, and I can't expect both rich and poor to be represented. Maybe it's about wealthy people. I can't expect to see all shades and hues of BIPOC. Not all stories in real life have representation of everything that falls under BIPOC. And the same can be said for gender diversity. Not all stories in real life have representation of gender diversity either. I think there's definitely a possibility for all races, genders, fluidities, and classes in movies. I mean, all, like you said, all not together, but uh, they just there just has to be some better writers, you know, to make it about the character and how they can develop through the movie or, or the movie or TV show. Right? It's all about a character and what they go through and what they learn and if they can evolve. That is a point, you know, not every movie has to be about your race, your background or sexual orientation or how much money you make or how much you don't, you know, they, they can be part of the character, who the character is and what they deal in, with in, in life. But you only being one of these things makes the movie very boring and it gets lost or show, you know, like Carlton's quote, black is who he is, not who he's trying to be. You can be black or brown and still be a superhero an action star horror movie lead like these are not things that any kind of race person whatever can't be all these genres can have whomever as a lead or characters in the film but being gay or black brown whatever doesn't stop you from being any kind of character like i said uh it doesn't have to be the main focus it doesn't have to carry the film you know also what does your sexual orientation have to do with being a superhero you know you could be dating or attracted to whoever you want who cares you're a superhero and that has nothing to do with you saving the world unless the villain has to know and or he'll blow up the world you know it really takes you out of the movie or whatever the movie was supposed to supposed to be it gets shadowed the first testing variant worth mentioning is the DuVernay test named for Ava DuVernay by film critic Manola Degaris to pass this test, an African-American character or characters or another minority must have an all-encompassing life with their own thoughts and desires, and they're more than just serving a background role for a white character storyline. Examples of movies that pass would be Girls Trip, Creed, Dear White People, Dope, and Tangerine. Girls Trip and Dope are awesome. Girls Trip is hilarious, though. Another variant is the Via Lobos test. Uh, not sure if I'm going to say her name right, but it's Ligia Villa Lobos, uh, producer and head writer of Go Diego Go. This test focuses on the representation of Latina women fighting common stereotypes. Uh, like we said earlier, most likely the spicy Latina. Uh, so to pass this test, there must be a Latina lead. 
and the lead character or Latina character must be shown as educated or professional and not just have the accent, uh, Latin accent or be sexualized. Um, a great example of this would be Jane the Virgin uh, starring Gina Rodriguez. Another variant is the co-test created by actress Naomi Ko from Dear White People. This test is a bit more inclusive in it that it applies to multiple minorities, allowing for more passes than fails. So to pass this test, there must be a non-white female character in a major role. She must be in five or more scenes and she must speak English. So films that pass this test include Hidden Figures, Ghostbusters, the film remake we mentioned earlier, and Suicide Squad. From Glad co-founder, there is the Vito Russo test, which has three requirements. There must be a lesbian, gay, bi, or transgender character, and that character must not be defined by their orientation or gender identity. Uh, they need to be unique, and they need to be important enough that their decisions affect the plot. Examples of passing films include Rough Night, Moonlight, The Imitation Game, and Hazel Como Hombre. There are so many tests that everyone can use to apply to content that they wish to see. Just Google and you'll come across hundreds of tests that cover broadly or narrowly the storytelling in any Hollywood production. But seeing how tests mostly cover works of fiction, do you think that the original concept of the Bechdel test can be tested in real life situations and conversations? I think so. Uh, both men and women talk about the opposite sex. So we talk about each other, I think, uh, more than we think that that happens. Uh, as long as the decisions we make or the goals we have in life aren't for a man or driven by a man, uh, I think it's possible. I mean, if you have somebody you look up to that's a man, I don't think that's the same thing, is it? I don't think so. No. It depends on the context. True. Um, yeah, so it can't be the only reason any of us do anything or the reason why we live. Um, I think it's pretty hard not to focus on the opposite sex. Um, I think the next generation, not us, but our children uh, might be better with this and hopefully better movies, better books, you know, people getting better jobs, more, more equality gender wise, as in, you know, um, I, I don't know why it's so incredibly difficult to write a movie that a woman is just a woman that's it you know her character like could be Jason Bourne but just that as a woman so like why can't the woman fight you know why can't she be a badass you know um he got blown apart and I'm not not one point was he like you know going to the shower and flexing his muscles or like doing something so stupid because it has nothing to do with the movie there, there has to be somebody that can write a movie about a woman that's not ridiculous. I, I'm not sure why it's so difficult. Anyways, it's it's just ridiculous. But so anyway, my point right. is, yes. <laughs> yes, we could. But I think if we tried to test ourselves for even one week, I think we'd fail. So, for example, like at the juncture I'm in, a, in my own life, like I'm single, I'm raising my son with a co-parent, a male co-parent. I work in a very male-oriented industry. I work in construction. Um, it's almost impossible for me to have conversations with the women in my life that aren't about men. So even if like, okay. I talk to my mom for over 60 seconds, which I do regularly, there's always talk of like my co-parent, my boss, the prime minister a lot lately. <laughs> um, <laughs> it's almost impossible. But I mean, it is possible. Like We'll talk about travel, new recipes, online shopping. Um, and discussions with friends like yourself and like our other friends are, it's hard too. like, we talk about husbands and boyfriends and their shenanigans because, you know, men are always full of shenanigans and it, mm -hmm. it's hard not to talk about. So I guess talking in real life is, is hard when it comes to testing the original protocol of the Bechdel test. I mean, I think if we were very rich, there would be no talk because we'd be yeah. like, hey, how are you in Portugal? You'd be like, oh, yeah, I just went there, but now I'm in Croatia. We're like, cool. I learned how to cook this. Yeah. I just bought like Louis Vuitton. Not Louis Vuitton. I don't like him. Uh, Christian Dior. Yeah. That's what we were talking about. It would be the best. Probably. <laughs> it really sounds good as I'm saying it. It does, but it sounds so fictitious. <laughs> I know. See you later, Radu. 
<laughs> Mommy's going on a trip. <laughs> Fictitious. It sounds what? like a movie. You said yes. fictitious, didn't you? Oh, yes, okay. fictitious. Are you saying you can't have fun without a man? No, I'm saying that whole scenario sounds very fictitious. Yeah. Oh, it's true. It's okay. I'm rich when I go to sleep. Okay. Enjoy. All right. Thank you. Bring me back. Bring me back a purse, please. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, what kind of purse? Um, I'll take a I'll take a Gucci or a Louis. Okay. Okay. Gonna note that down on my rich note paper. Okay, so the last test we wanted to mention before signing off this episode is the Feldman test, which was developed by director Rachel Feldman. We mentioned earlier that while the content we watch should be as inclusive as possible, what's going on behind the camera is equally important. In the past few years, there's been more and more talk about Hollywood being more diverse and inclusive in all aspects of life. And the topic of women on production teams and writing rooms is being taken into consideration. The test works on a scoring system, so 10 points in total. The 10 points are as follows. Two points for female director, one point for female composer or director of photography, one point for three female producers, three female department heads, and one point uh, if the crew is 50% women. Characterization and representation of women are also taken into account for this test. Uh, Two points if there's a female protagonist who determines the story's outcomes. Two Two points if no female character is stereotyped or sexualized or victimized as part of the story. And one point if a sex scene show foreplay or the reciprocation of sexual advances. Um, So this test is more examines real life production more than fiction. Since this test examines the real life of a production more than the fiction of it, it was definitely worth mentioning. Yeah, definitely a good test to keep in mind. Um, In keeping with the theme of today's episode, there is one last thing I wanted to add. I came across the Gina Davis Institute on Gender in Media while I was doing research, which I didn't even know existed. Yeah, I didn't even know it existed, but I'm glad it does. So it was founded in 2004 by actor Gina Davis. And it is the only global research-based organization working within the entertainment industry to create gender balance, foster inclusion, and reduce negative stereotyping in entertainment media. They consistently analyze six major marginalized identities, women, people of color, LGBTQIA+, people with disabilities, older people that are 60+, and large-bodied people in advertising and film and television. Their website has a ton of research and stats on it that I believe will be of interest to many of our listeners. We'll be posting about the Institute this week for everyone to check out. Yes. So thank you for turning in to this episode. We really appreciate it and hope to hear from you via social media on Facebook, Twitter, or Instagram at Mixed DNA Podcast. Bye, everybody. Bye.